It shouldn't hurt to be a child. It shouldn't hurt to be a child, but many children are hurting. Many boys and girls are on the receiving end of adult violence, verbal, psychological, physical. What an irony in a society that is presumed to cherish its children. Such is the agenda, such is the crisis, such is the tragedy that draws us together for today's Westminster Town Hall Forum here at Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. The voice of conscience on this issue that we have gathered to give our undivided attention is that of Anne Cohn, Executive Director of the National Council for Prevention of Child Abuse, a responsibility which has been hers since 1980. In that role, she oversees the activities of a 50-state network of chapters, a nationwide public service media endeavor, a national center on child abuse prevention research, and various other activities, including an extensive publications program and advocacy agendas. Also, she is currently the secretary of the International Society for Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect. Dr. Cohn has advanced degrees from the University of Michigan, from Tufts University, and from the University of California School of Public Health. Dr. Cohn, in reading a recent paper written by you, one becomes aware of both good news and bad news. The good news, since 1988, 15% fewer parents report yelling and swearing at their children, and 13% fewer parents report using hitting as a form of discipline. The bad news, child abuse fatalities appear to be on the rise by 23% in the last two years, and reports of serious abuse are up 10% in the last year alone. In short, we are seeing more serious cases and more fatalities. Dr. Cohn, tell us more. Tell us what we need to know and what we need to do, given the fact that it shouldn't hurt to be a child. Dr. Meisel, thank you. It is a great honor to be here at this fine church and in this fine community a community that has been so forward-thinking about the needs of children and the needs of families. I have seen many faces of child abuse. I first met Hillary at her daughter's daycare center. She reminded me a lot of one of my friends from college. She was tall, attractive, and energetic, and she started talking right away about little Rachel. She said, it's just Rachel and me. Her, her dad was never around. I always thought Rachel was a good kid, though, and at least most of the time. But she had her moments, and she could be quite impossible. Mostly, you know, she, she just didn't help out. She just didn't help out around the house. She didn't clean up after herself. 
She didn't wash the dishes. She, she just didn't contribute to the work that needed to be done. Instead, she always seemed to be creating more and more work for me to do. And, and sometimes it made me so mad. I, I just explode. I'd lose control. Like the day, I guess, I just hit her a lot. And then, well, and then she had to be hospitalized. Rachel sustained multiple broken bones. She was three years old. She was now in a daycare center for abused children. I looked over at Rachel, a sad child playing blocks by herself near a little boy named Jimmy. Hillary told me that Jimmy had been a twin. She said, but his parents took care of that six months ago. I guess it was after the, his dad was fired once again and, and I think he was on drugs. These are two of the faces of child abuse, broken bones and even death. But child abuse can also look quite different. When Beatrice was 14 years old, she had her second baby, another boy. I met her shortly thereafter. Beatrice lived with her mother and four of her nine brothers and sisters. There were several other toddlers in the household. It was a four-room apartment. It seemed to me like chaos reigned everywhere. Beatrice did diaper and feed her boys some of the time, but she didn't talk to them. She didn't coo at her baby. She didn't play with them, and she rarely hugged them. It didn't take me long to realize she simply didn't know how. I remember someone commented about her two-year-old. You know, you just can't get that kid to smile. It's, it's like he has no emotion at all. Sandy had a hard time saying it. We had known each other since we were children. I knew her parents, I knew her family. Now she was 35 years old. She explained to me that she had never told anyone, but she figured I already knew. After all, I worked a lot with child abuse, so I probably knew. Yes, she said, it's true. My dad molested me during the whole time I was in high school. I kind of thought it was my fault, she said, and, and I didn't dare tell anybody. And, and then right after high school, my dad passed away, so it didn't seem important to tell anybody, but you know what? It still hurts a lot. I feel like a marked woman. These are the other faces of child abuse, neglect and sexual abuse. They all do seem different, but they have one thing in common, and that's that there is a child who's been hurt, a child who's been deprived of, of a nurturing, healthy, joyful childhood, a child who will very likely carry the scars of abuse into their own adult lives and turn it inward on themselves or turn it toward others, a child who gets involved with drugs or alcohol, a child who later is depressed or may attempt suicide, a child who drops out of school, who becomes a teenage delinquent, who becomes a teenage prostitute, and in fact, some of the time, a child who grows up to abuse their own children. I firmly believe it shouldn't hurt to be a child. I'm sure you do too. I firmly believe that we shouldn't wait until Rachel's bones are broken to intervene and try and do something and patch up the pain. I'm sure you do too. For the last decade, a tremendous amount of energy has been directed toward trying to stop child abuse before it occurs, toward primary prevention of child abuse. In my talk today, I want to talk about primary prevention. I want to talk about the efforts of the last decade. I want to review what has been accomplished, what progress we've made, and what hasn't been accomplished, and indeed what challenges we face for the next decade. To begin, Let's review briefly the basic principles that we've been using in designing and implementing primary prevention programs during the 1980s. 
First of all, we've seen child abuse as a very complex problem, which it is. We've understood that there is no pill, there is no vaccine, there is no medical model where a simple intervention will make this problem go away. We've understood that the underlying causes of child abuse are many. Some of them are personal. A parent has no understanding of child development, has poor coping skills, poor parenting skills, has low self-esteem, is isolated. Maybe they were abused themselves when they were children. But part of child abuse has to do with the values that we hold in our society, our interest in all the violence on television, our use of corporal punishment in our schools. And part of child abuse has to do with other environmental factors like poverty and racism and sexism. And we understood that in preventing child abuse, we needed to take account of all those different factors. We recognized that the different types of child abuse have different underlying causes. While a parent who verbally assaults their child may simply have no understanding of the impact of those words, may not be aware of the words that they're saying, a parent who neglects their child may be influenced by environmental factors well beyond their control. And so in preventing different kinds of abuse, we need to design different preventive strategies. We understood that there was no easy way to just identify potential perpetrators. There is no simple paper and pencil test to give to see who is at risk to abuse. Instead, prevention efforts need to target whole populations, all young parents, all first-time parents, and so on. We felt it was essential in designing prevention programs to focus on primary prevention, to not be distracted by what happens after child abuse occurs to the reporting system and the investigation system and the treatment system, but rather to focus efforts on doing things before child abuse happen. And we identified four areas during the decade in which our activities should take place. The first had to do with involving the public Based on the belief that social workers or social workers and doctors or social workers, doctors and law enforcement officials alone cannot prevent child abuse because it is so deeply embedded in our values, in the way in which our communities are organized and our families are structured, there was a belief that everyone needed to be involved to prevent child abuse. And we had a goal during this decade, in fact, of involving all sectors of society in our efforts. The second set of activities had to do with public education. Based on the belief that people won't want to get involved, people won't want to do something unless they know there is a problem, first of all, but then they also know that there is something they can do and they know what that something is. And so we had a second goal during the decade of making sure that the public was fully aware of how to get involved in preventing child abuse. And third, we indicated that there were some policy changes we need to focus on because there are certain environmental factors that just get in the way of our prevention efforts. There not being enough money to put preventive services into place, or as I mentioned, the existence of corporal punishment in our schools where we're teaching children at school that violence is an okay way to solve a problem, whereas at home, we're trying to teach parents alternatives. And finally, we focused on certain services, believing that indeed there needs to be some kind of one-on-one -on -one interaction with people to help parents know how to do a better job of parenting, to teach children how to protect themselves so that they aren't abused, to help victims get beyond the scars of abuse so they don't grow up and repeat the pattern, and to make sure that parents under stress indeed have access to different kinds of services so they can reach out for help. Let me now take a few minutes and talk about specifically what we have been doing during the last decade based on those basic principles, 
based on those beliefs about what primary prevention would be. With respect to public involvement during the decade, we have been quite literally reaching out to all sectors of the society and trying to involve everyone. There's been a little magic rule that's been used. It's called the one-third, one-third, one-third rule, which says, in efforts to prevent child abuse, it is critical to involve child abuse professionals, those social workers and those pediatricians who know the problem from a clinical perspective. It is equally important to involve concerned citizens who have time and energy and commitment and want to get involved. And it is important to involve the business community, the corporate community, who have resources and expertise to bear on the problem. And so during the, the last decade, we have focused efforts on building infrastructures across the country, setting up organizations that would allow for participation from one-third professionals, one-third concerned citizens, one-third the corporate community. The National Committee for Prevention of Child Abuse, Parents Anonymous, the National pa Parent Aid Association, the Family Resource Coalition, just to name a few of the national organizations that have been involved in the last decade, setting up organizations all across the country to allow massive involvement from all sectors of society. During the decade, we have been focusing on public education. Our primary tool has been the use of public service advertising. Our effort has been to get some critical messages out to the general public and to parents. To the general public, we have been wanting to say, everybody has a role to play in preventing child abuse. If you know of a parent who's having difficulty, reach out and offer a helping hand. If you yourself are having difficulty, get some help for yourself. And what about those other messages for parents? We've wanted to say, and we've said, when the big and little stresses of life build up to the point where you're just about to lash out at your kid, stop. Take time out. Don't take it out on your child. And we've told parents through public service advertising, children believe what their parents tell them. Next time, stop and listen to what you're saying. You might not believe your ears. And we put forward the message, stop using words that hurt. Start using words that help. And we've told parents, it is okay to reach out for help. And efforts have certainly gone beyond public service advertising, and the media has been pursued in a lot of other ways, through talk shows and news programs, TV specials, articles and magazines, even a statewide effort such as the one you had here in Minnesota some five years ago that on a given day brought school children all across your state information about what they could do to protect themselves from abuse. And with respect to changing the environment in which abuse happens, we identified certain areas where we really thought we could make a difference with respect to policy. And we focused on them, and we worked on them, and we tried to change laws, and we tried to change regulations. We tried to create opportunities for more money coming into this area. And in one state and then another, we, we created children's trust funds a special funding mechanism to allow dollars to flow into primary prevention. In one state, created by increasing the costs of marriage licenses and birth certificates, and in another, created by allowing individuals, when they file their state income tax returns, to make a contribution to child abuse prevention. And we organized advocacy coalitions and looked at ways to create opportunities for child care. And we organized other coalitions and looked at ways to ban the use of corporal punishment in the schools. And what about with respect to services? In this community, throughout your state, and across the country, there were efforts to develop home visitor programs for new parents. 
parent aid programs and other similar opportunities so that new parents and pa parents under stress would get counseling, would get support, could befriend someone who could go with them when they needed help so that they wouldn't lash out at their children. Different kinds of crisis services were put into place. Hotlines and helplines, drop-in centers and crisis nurseries and support groups such as Parents Anonymous. And in one school after another, we started to test out and create opportunities for children to learn how to protect themselves from abuse. And initially, those programs were quite simple. They carried a message, say no and go tell someone if you feel someone is touching you inappropriately. And over the decade, those programs have become increasingly more sophisticated and I believe much more effective as they have begun to now teach children how to develop a better sense of themselves, how to resolve conflicts, how to relate better to their peers and adults, how to make decisions, and also how to protect themselves from abuse. And we saw the development of different kinds of services for victims of abuse, for adults who had been victimized when they were young, groups for survivors of abuse when they were about to become parents themselves, as well as different kinds of opportunities for children at the time they were abused to get beyond the scars. And during all this time, child abuse cases were being identified, and child abuse cases were being reported to the authorities, and they were being investigated, and in some instances, families were getting help. This is what we've been up to during the last decade. Many of you in this room have been involved in those efforts, and literally, hundreds of thousands of people across the country, in one way or another, have been involved. It's timely to ask, what has all this added up to? Have we made a difference? Has our focus on primary prevention and our focus on public involvement and public awareness and changing the environment and putting services into place made a difference? What progress have we made? Let me take a few minutes to tell you about what indeed has been accomplished. First of all, with respect to public involvement, it's really quite extraordinary. Over 120,000 volunteers are involved in the organization called the National Committee for Prevention of Child Abuse alone. And that is just one organization that is operating nationally, at the state level, and in local communities to do something about this problem. There is, as I mentioned, the National Parents Anonymous Organization and the National Parent Aid Association and others. But the involvement goes well beyond those people who are drawn logically to causes like child abuse. It also includes the Boy Scouts and the Boys Clubs and the Girls Clubs who have all taken on child abuse prevention as a major priority. It includes the General Federation of Women's Clubs and the Kappa Delta Sorority and the Sigma Delta Tau Sorority. It includes the Kiwanis and the Cooperative Extension, a branch of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It includes Marvel Comics. It includes the American Amusement Machine Association, the National Basketball Association, and the Target Stores. The variety of organizations nationally and locally involved in this effort is now rich and diverse. As Barbara Bush says on a new television commercial, we all have a role to play, and that message is being heard, and different kinds of groups and individuals are getting involved. And what about with respect to public awareness? In 1975, it appeared that only one out of every 10 adults had heard of the battered child syndrome. By 1985, nine out of 10 adults had heard of the battered child syndrome, understood there were different kinds of child abuse, and understood the connections to crime, and even the connections to drugs. And today, 
What do we find? Not only is the public fully aware, but over 90% of the public believes that yelling and swearing at children can lead to harm, perhaps the results of our media campaign on verbal abuse. Over 70% of the public believes that hitting and the use of physical discipline can lead to injury of children. 62% of the public believes that teachers should not use corporal punishment in the schools. Contrast this to the late 1970s when 48% of the public believed similarly. A major shift in the public's awareness of and concern about this problem. And what about the public's direct involvement? What about their behavior? In the early 1980s when asked, the public said, we think that the government should do something about this terrible problem. Now when you ask the public, 75% say, I think I can do something about this problem. I'm not sure what, but I'm concerned and I want to get involved. And in fact, last year alone, 25% of the American public, based on a survey we have done, said, I did something last year to help prevent child abuse. I reached out and helped a parent I knew who was under stress. I asked a parent I knew to stop yelling at their child or to stop hitting their child. And what about with respect to policies? Have we made progress? You bet. 49 states today have children's trust funds. Those trust funds collectively spent $28 million this last year, funding over 1,400 different primary prevention programs nationwide, programs that simply were not fundable because no dollars existed to fund them a decade ago. This last year, during the financial crisis in Washington, D.C., the federal government doubled its budget related to child abuse. Most states have improved their laws regarding children in the courtroom so that children who have been victimized of abuse are not re-victimized when they do enter the courtroom. Child care for many will now be a reality because of efforts at the national level. And to me, most exciting, 12 states in the last decade have changed their laws regarding the use of corporal punishment in schools. It's still the majority of states that allow it but the majority of school districts across the country have now banned the use of corporal punishment, a major victory in efforts to change the environment in which we're trying to prevent child abuse. And with respect to services, this last decade has been a tough one for social services. Generally, we've seen cutbacks. Generally, we've seen services closed down. But in the child abuse prevention arena, it's been a different story. 10% increase in the number of hospitals offering parenting education to new mothers. A 10% increase in the number of hospitals offering parents support groups to new parents to help them get off to a good start. Today, 61% of the elementary schools across the country say they offer prevention education to children. At the beginning of the decade, there were none. There has been major progress. More people are involved. The public is more aware. We have better policies in place, and we have more services in place. What does this all add up to? Well, it adds up to a number of different things that I think it's important to take a look at. First of all, when we look at parenting behavior across the country, we have some exciting news, as you've heard. 15% fewer parents today report insulting and swearing at their children than was true two years ago. There has been a shift in the way parents interact with their children. 13% fewer parents today report hitting their children than two years ago. Again, a shift in the way parents are parenting. 
And yet, as you heard, when we look at some other measures of child abuse, for example, the number of reports of serious cases or the number of child abuse fatalities, we see increases. We see a 10% increase in reports of child abuse in the last year alone. It's not because the public is more aware. When you talk to workers on the front line, they say they are seeing more cases and they're seeing more serious cases coming in. We have seen a major increase in the number of child abuse fatalities. We're not just counting better. There is an actual increase in the number of children who are being killed as a result of child abuse. What has gone wrong in this last decade? Are we doing the wrong things? Are we not doing enough? Were there some things we overlooked that we shouldn't have? I think that all three of these may be the case. There are some things we just didn't pay attention to very much in the last decade, and a significant one that I think helps explain the increases in serious cases of child abuse and fatalities is the situation with Children's Protective Services itself. Before 1980, the Children's Protective Service Agency was seen as an agency that helped families. Its role was to offer help to families that had, in one way or another, broken down and couldn't take care of their children. We encouraged families to report themselves to Children's Protective Services so they could get help, and they did get help. During the last decade, the number of reports have increased dramatically. Funding for Children's Protective Service Agencies nationwide has not kept pace. And what we see today in city after city are protective service agencies that have become overwhelmed and in many respects overburdened. Social workers who once had a small caseload size and were really able to offer helpful, concrete services to their families today may carry 50 or 60 or 70 families. Agencies that were once able to afford to hire workers with master's level degrees or at least provide them training on the job today no longer can afford that luxury. And we see workers that don't have adequate training and workers that don't have adequate access to services and resources for their families. And so families get reported to protective services and many of them may not get the help that they need. And it's not unusual when we analyze child abuse fatalities today and the serious cases of child abuse today coming into protective services to see that altogether too many of them have been in that agency once before or twice before or many times before and just didn't get the help that they needed. We need to fix the system. But there's some other things that we weren't able to anticipate or didn't anticipate well enough that I think also account for the increases in child abuse. One of those, and a very significant one, is the drug problem. It grew large during this last decade, and it started to attack populations that it hadn't before and in ways it hadn't before. During the late 1980s, crack cocaine became the drug of choice, and regrettably, the drug of choice for young people, for women, for young mothers, for pregnant women. I told you about Beatrice. We got Beatrice into a parent aid program because we thought she needed help so she could do a better job of parenting. The parent aid had a tough time. Most of the time when she went to Beatrice's home, Beatrice was asleep. Sometimes Beatrice wasn't there at all. When there were appointments to keep, Beatrice just didn't seem to remember them. Soon enough, we found out that B had a drug problem. 
And that drug problem was keeping her from getting any kind of benefit from her parent aid and the other kind of services that people wanted to offer to her. Our preventive approaches during the last decade have not taken account of the drug problem. They haven't been shaped to understand how to work with parents who do have a drug problem so that indeed they can be helped both with their drug problem and their difficulties parenting. And until we discover how to do that, we will continue to see serious cases of child abuse on the rise. During the last decade, our preventive approaches didn't take well enough account of the issues of the underclass. Life for the underclass in the last decade has not gotten better. It has gotten worse. Recently, I was at the Robert Taylor Homes in Chicago, once one of the proud series of edifices that represented public housing, today a war zone. In each of those buildings, the number of windows that have been bombed out and burned out is distressing. When you walk through those hallways, what you feel and what you see is something that is cold, something that is sterile, something that is unfriendly. Doors are locked. Behind those doors are people who are having a very difficult time struggling with the violence that goes on in their corridors and the violence that goes on in front of their very buildings. A parenting course is not going to help the mother who lives on the 14th floor of that Robert Taylor home building that I visited. The elevator is broken most of the days of the week. And the gunshots going back and forth between children, as well as between adults and children, frighten her so much she can't even take her child out to get to the doctor. Our preventive approaches need to be designed to take account of the needs of those people living in the underclass so that indeed we don't continue to see serious cases of child abuse and child abuse fatalities on the rise. But there are some other things that we haven't taken account of in the last decade that we need to as well. And one of those is the issue of cultural diversity. Successful prevention programs need to take account of different values and different mores and different child-rearing practices of different groups, different economic groups, different racial groups, different ethnic groups, different cultural groups. We need to be sensitive to the special circumstances of different populations. This doesn't mean we have to change our definitions of child abuse, not at all, but that our programs have to be tailored to the needs of each of those different communities. And it's something, in fact, we've not been doing during the last decade. And in fact, if you looked at who is participating in the child abuse prevention movement across the country and who is designing the programs, you wouldn't see a great deal of cultural diversity. And so when you look at the content of the programs, you don't see that cultural diversity as well. And it seems to me that if we want to see a decline in the number of serious cases and a decline in the number of child abuse fatalities, our program designers and our program disseminators, as well as our programs, have to be culturally diverse and culturally sensitive. And there's yet one other thing we haven't taken account of during the last decade that I think has contributed to the increase in violence toward children. And that is our general tolerance of violence in our society. As a society, we have an enjoyment of violence that seems to know no bars. Think of the movie Die Hard 1, and think of the movie Die Hard 2, from 17 murders to 37. Why the increase? To get more people out to see it. That's one of our most popular movies of the day, and we could list many others. And you can turn on your television set and see many others. 
And you can know that when a high school student graduates from high school, they will have seen approximately 40,000 attempted murders on television. We love that violence. We flock to see it. We buy it. I ask you, is it possible that the amount of child abuse we see in our society is related to our enjoyment of, our tolerance of, the amount of violence we have in general? I believe it is. I think we need to document that relationship. I think we need to educate ourselves better about it and then start to bring about some changes. There are some other things that are happening in our environment that I have no doubt will wreak havoc with the lives of children. The possibility of war, the possibility that as a nation we set an agenda that says it is our right to go out and kill, the possibility that as we are trying to teach parents peaceful parenting, as a nation we are not being peaceful. I think this could interfere with our abilities to prevent child abuse. The growing financial distress of this country will undoubtedly wreak havoc with the lives of children. As unemployment rates grow up, grow up, as corporations cut back, as small businesses close down, there's no doubt but that families are going to be touched and in turn children are going to be touched. These are all things that we haven't addressed or addressed well during the last decade. And I think they help explain why we haven't made the progress we all would have loved to have made. And so in conclusion, let me just say what I see as our challenges for the next decade. Our challenges as I see them are twofold. One, to do more of what we've been doing, because I think what we have been doing has been important. And two, to begin to respond to those new challenges. What more do we need to do that we've been doing? If 25% of the public is involved today, we need to increase that to 50%. We need more public education. We need more opportunities for every single one of you and members of your families and your neighbors and your friends to become involved in this issue. Second, if there is a 15% decrease in the number of parents who are yelling and insulting their children in the last two years, we have to double that in the next two and quadruple that, quadruple that in the next five. We need to make sure that parents understand how not to hit their children and how not to swear at their children, what positive parenting alternatives are. And we need to do more about putting primary prevention services into place. It's not true that today all hospitals offer home visitor programs or support groups for new parents. All hospitals need to. It's not true that all elementary schools are offering quality prevention education for children. That's something we need to work on. And it's certainly not true that all victims of abuse are getting therapeutic care. We have a long way to go. It's a challenge we have to meet. And there's some unfinished business in the policy arena. We still have 29 states that allow corporal punishment in their schools. We still have a long way to go with respect to childcare and parental leave and a number of other policies that are gonna make life for families much more helpful. But there's some other things that we now know we need to take account of. We must take account of the issue of cultural diversity. We must take account of the issue of the underclass. We have to include everyone in our prevention movement we have to include everyone in the designing and the tailoring of programs so they truly meet the needs of different population groups. We must address the substance abuse problem head on. There is such a strong link there today between what is happening in the lives of children and what their parents are doing with their own lives. 
we have to figure out how in a preventive way to address the issue so that parents and children can survive. We need to do something about the Children's Protective Service System. Part of it's more money, part of it's better training, part of it's access to more services, part of it is higher salaries for workers. But unless that system works, primary prevention is not going to work either. And finally, we do need to better understand the connections between violence in general in our society, our acceptance of it, our tolerance of it, and the existence of child abuse. And once we do understand that and educate ourselves about it, we need to respond to the problem. I had a call from Beatrice last month. At age 20, she had had her fourth baby. Wouldn't it be wonderful if for that child there was ahead a happy, stimulating, loving childhood? We all have a role to play in making sure it shouldn't hurt to be a child. Thank you. your organization in, in a word is to stop using words that hurt and to start using words that help. Well, your words have been extremely and exceedingly helpful and insightful here this afternoon, and we look forward to the remainder of our time with you. This is a moment when we uh, permit those of you who must leave to do so, though we would encourage you to stay. It's also a time when you may pass out the questions you've written on those yellow cards and send them to the aisles. They'll be picked up and brought forward. The uh, radio audience is, is also alerted to the fact that you may call in your questions, and we'll share as many of them here as we possibly can. The church's phone number is 332-3421, 332-3421. And to our radio audience, uh, let me simply remind, in case you tuned in late, that you've been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, that our speaker has been Ann Cohn, speaking on the subject, The Changing Face of Child Abuse. Ms. Cohn is Executive Director of the National Committee for Prevention of Child Abuse. Our co-sponsor for this forum, as for two others during this season, the McKnight Foundation, and we thank them. I am Donald Meisel, a minister here at Westminster and moderator of these forums. Uh, Ann Cohn, would you do us the kindness of returning to the podium, and we'll start uh, sending a few questions your way. Uh, while the yellow cards are being sorted. May I ask, would you tell us a bit more about Parents Anonymous? I, I heard the term. I'd like to know more what that means. Parents Anonymous is a tremendously important organization in this field. It is organized a little bit like Alcoholics Anonymous in that it is based on a self-help model. It is organized by groups across the country, and it provides an opportunity largely for parents who have had difficulty parenting, who have already abused their children, 
but also for parents who are worried that they might abuse, to get involved in a group with other people who have had similar difficulties, to have a chance to talk out those problems, to learn that they're not alone, to share information with each other, to strengthen their own parenting skills while reaching out and, and helping others who are in need. And so these are self-help groups that are organized in this community and across the country, and, and, and a kind of strategy that research has shown is particularly effective for people who have had difficulty abusing their children. Good, thank you. Uh, would you please hand me a card or two? Thank you. We are gathered here in a, in a church setting. Could you say something about uh, what the religious community is or ought to be doing in this whole realm? The religious community has a very important, a very powerful role to play in preventing child abuse. And in fact, during the last decade, we have begun to see that in small community churches and in small community synagogues, as well as at the national level through organized religion. It, the church community, the religious community, offers families a sense of community. It is a place where people are very often willing to turn for help. When parents are under stress, to turn to a minister or a rabbi or a fellow parishioner and get some help can be more effective than just about anything else. And, and so different religious institutions are offering crisis services, parenting courses, counseling services to families under stress as well as families who have already abused. I know that in a number of religious institutions across the country there is an opportunity during April National Child Abuse Prevention Month for there to be a children's Sabbath when the head of the religious community will give a sermon on child abuse and the role individuals can play in help preventing it and so the, the religious community can also serve an educational and public awareness function. Question from the audience. We have prevention programs for teen pregnancy, child abuse, drug abuse, etc. Shouldn't we be working together, integrating our approaches instead of duplicating services? Unless we work together, I think we might botch it. The fact of the matter is, is that so often it is the very same families in need who are those who are concerned with preventing child abuse and those who are concerned with preventing teenage pregnancy and those who are concerned with preventing substance abuse or in fact attempting to help. And unless we work together, unless we can figure out ways to be partners in prevention, not only will our own efforts be duplicative, ineffective and inefficient, but also I think families will be hurt for families to be bombarded by so many different opportunities First of all, it's hard to know which of them to take advantage of, but it can also be very confusing and certainly not very effective. So unless we do learn better to work together, I think our approaches will not be effective. And so it's a very important question and one I think we all need to keep in mind. Thank you. Prenatal child abuse has become a very serious issue, especially for mothers on drugs. They have no connection with medical and social services. What do you see as needed in these areas? There has been growing concern about uh, prenatal drug abuse and, and certainly that concern has spread beyond drug abuse to substance abuse in general, and uh, which can include alcohol abuse and even smoking. There are a number of states that have looked at alternatives to legislation, making it in fact child abuse if you 
are involved in some kind of substance abuse before a baby is born. Certainly the illegal substances, and in some states that is now a reportable child abuse offense. I'm not sure that that, that is the way to stop the problem. It seems to me that there is a tremendous need for education of young people, of people who are on the verge of becoming parents themselves, of pregnant women in particular, to make sure they truly can understand the implications of what they are doing uh, for their developing fetus and eventually for their child. And that's a very tough kind of education to, to do effectively. There are too many examples that a young mother can point to of her own children or other people's children who seem to, quote, come out okay. And so it's hard to educate people about the need to, to take particular precaution during that prenatal period, but I do believe that our most effective approaches there are preventive and not legalistic. Question from the floor. Recently, a child was killed in Iowa, I believe it was. Uh, there had been an intervention by a child protection service, but because the father was a doctor, they returned the child. Can you please address the issue of child abuse in all social classes and professions? I don't think there is an economic group, a religious group, a cultural group, a racial group, an ethnic group, a geographic group, urban-rural, that is exempt from the problem of child abuse. We have seen, we have found, we know of child abuse cases literally in every neighborhood in this country. That doesn't mean it, it occurs equally in all neighborhoods, and it really is in part a definitional one. Cases of physical neglect, almost by definition, occur with much greater frequency in low-income communities, and I think that it stands to reason why that is so. Um, but it is the case that mm -hmm. In some respects, that, that phrase that all of us are potential abusers has some truth to it. The right set of life circumstances for any one of us could set us over the brink that may result in some kind of abusive behavior toward our children. And so when you hear about a doctor, or as we did in New York, an attorney who have abused their children to the point of child, a child abuse death while it gets much more attention and a child abuse fatality in a low-income community, it shouldn't take us by surprise that it's happened, because it can and it does happen. Another question from the floor. Will you please speak to the role of daycare centers in prevention of child abuse, as well as identification of victims? Daycare plays a tremendously important role in our families today. Um, with two parents working, or if there's one parent in the home, one parent working, the availability to quality daycare, quality childcare is certainly critical. Daycare centers themselves, often just by their existence, are helpful in preventing child abuse, because often for a parent to be able to get away from that heavy and continuous responsibility of childcare for a while, or at least to know that there is a good place to put a child while they go off to work, is exactly what it might take to help prevent child abuse. At the same time, daycare centers have roles that go well beyond that. Um, sometimes they can be helpful in instructing parents about different facets of parenting that will help them do a better job and, and, and be better parents. They can indeed be helpful in identifying high-risk families and making sure that they do get some support. They can also be helpful, depending upon the age of the children, 
and sometimes detecting abuse and making sure that those cases get the appropriate kind of legal intervention. So the roles of daycare centers are quite varied and very important in terms of child abuse prevention. Thank you. Here's a question from the radio audience. In the state of Minnesota, there is a law requiring medical people to report to the state pregnant women using cocaine. This is a very controversial issue. Uh, what are your thoughts? I am concerned about that law, even though I fully understand what the motivation is behind its introduction into state legislatures and its passage, and it's obviously out of a concern for the well-being um, of a child. Um, but I'm concerned about it because I don't believe that this kind of a legalistic approach is what is going to solve the problem. I am not convinced that reporting such a case to the authorities is the way to get help to a family. I'm not convinced that the help those families need is the kind of help that one would necessarily receive, for example, from a Children's Protective Service Agency, as opposed to from a drug counseling agency or something else. I think those Children's Protective Service Agencies are too overwhelmed at the moment of a number of other kinds of cases to have to also now to develop a whole new set of skills to deal with those. So for a significant number of reasons, I am concerned. And yet at the same time, I truly, truly do understand the very good motivations of people in proposing that kind of legislation. Mm -hmm. Thank you. What about families wrongly accused of child abuse? Families or other people for that matter. Last year, there were 2.4 million reports of child abuse across the country. About half of them, after an investigation was conducted, were deemed serious enough or real enough to be opened up for some kind of intervention. It means that the other half were either not serious enough or in some way or another were not actual cases of child abuse and didn't need to be brought into the system. And undoubtedly, some number of those are what get referred to as, quote, false reports, unquote. Now, there are two different kinds of false reports. There's the report where I have some, an in for my neighbor and I decide I'm going to report him for child abuse because I really hate him even though he probably didn't do it. And then there's the kind of false report where I really believe something's going on but I didn't really know all the facts. I was worried about the well-being of a child and I essentially reported it so that somebody else, a professional, could come out and take a look and make an actual determination if a child is safe. Those kinds of reports don't concern me. I, I think that it is important to have a system that can err on the side of making sure that children are safe. What is concerning, and I know is concerning to people in your state and people across the country, are those cases where indeed no child abuse happened, but evidence suggested that there was child abuse. And where that evidence comes from can be any one of a number of different sources. But in those instances, families get disrupted uh, lies, in fact, in some instances, have really taken quite a toll as a result of a false report and an intervention on a part of an agency that went too far, that really harmed the family. And yet our system is set up in such a way that we're erring on the side of the child and for the benefit of a child who can't protect himself or herself, and I think that that makes tremendous sense. This is a related question and from the radio audience. What protection is there for the person who reports the child abuse case. There may be a fear uh, attached to that for fear of reprisal. Anyone who reports child abuse in this state or any state, in fact, is protected um, under the law. 
uh, there is there is no recourse that could occur legally. Now, someone can bring a suit against you, but indeed, uh, they're not likely to win it. Um, you can make a report anonymously if it is a concern. I would certainly recommend against that. Um, if a worker gets a report and it's anonymous and they need a little more information from you, they have no way to find you to get additional information or confirm the information that they did receive. Um, but if, if a person thinks that they should report a case of child abuse because they know of a situation where they really think a child is being seriously injured in one way or another and they want to make sure that there is some kind of intervention, fear of some kind of legal reprisal should not keep them uh, from making that report. Thank you. Another question. When do you think we need to take children out of their homes for their protection? What should be the criteria for this decision? It is very tough to know exactly when it is right to take a child out of a home and when it is okay to leave a child in the home. The reason for taking a child out of the home is to ensure the safety of that child. If one has reason to believe that a child's not just life but well-being is in serious jeopardy by leaving them with their parent or parents, that is reason for taking a child out of the home. How do you know if that's the case? It is very difficult. We're dealing with human behavior, which is in many respects unpredictable. Um, a parent who has been very volatile won't necessarily continue to be volatile. On the other hand, there are some things that people know from long years of practice in this field, and that is that someone who has been very violent for a long period of time and is very actively involved in drugs is not going to stop being violent immediately. Um, certain situations with regard to sexual abuse are not going to alleviate themselves immediately. It's simply too threatening to a child. And so it is through years of experience, clinical experience, that people develop a sense of what that moment is when indeed a child's well-being is in serious enough jeopardy to warrant taking them out of the home. How does one deal with the fact that they were an abusive parent? What should be their course of action? I suppose anybody who's had a child has had a moment, if not many, when they felt they may have been more than just a little abusive. Maybe just verbally, maybe by ignoring a child who wanted something, and maybe in other ways. I think acknowledging that is probably the most significant first step for a person to take, but if you're really concerned about the way you're interacting with your child, if you're really concerned that your abuse wasn't just a one-time event out of a moment of total anxiety, but but more a pattern of behavior, I would highly recommend that a person give serious consideration to reaching out for help. Calling a local Parents Anonymous group or, the, or a local mental health center or the local uh, United Way or YW or YMCA to find some kind of a parenting group or parenting class to get into to get some help. All of us could do a better job with the parenting that we do and so I would think if a person has some concerns, reach out, get some help, it really is okay. You referred to the war zone many of the underclass experience and its inferred effect on their parenting role. Please, your opinion on the need for a stand on gun control. If we could control the use of guns in this country to the point where they were not in the hands of families, of teenagers, 120,000 of whom take them to school with them during the course of a school day. 
if we kept them so that they were out of the households and not in the hands of children, 3,500 of whom shot another child in the last year, we would go a long way in helping to address the issue of child abuse. I have a very strong feeling about that, and I think that we need very strong gun control laws to make sure that children and families are safe places for all the members of the household. Is child abuse being dealt with effectively by our judicial system? What needs, if anything, to be changed? Five years ago, in state legislatures across the country, the single most popular topic to introduce a bill on was child abuse. There have been more ideas about how to improve our child abuse laws during the last decade than just about any other issue that this country has grappled with. A lot of those proposed laws have been good ones, and a tremendous number of those good ones, in fact, have been enacted at the state level. Some that some people may not regard as so good have been enacted as well. Um, and there are nice, nice models, for example, of how to improve legal proceedings so that both parents' rights and children's rights are well attended to, so that neither adults nor children are maligned or harmed by the legal process, and particularly in the case of children because courtrooms are set up really to address the needs of and the interests of adults. And there are nice models of laws that have been introduced in this state and across the country that could be modeled by those states that haven't looked at them yet that I think could make a great difference in ensuring that the legal proceedings with respect to child abuse are more humane, are more sensitive, and indeed are more efficient and effective. That's just one example of the many areas in which we could improve our, our laws. Could our entertainment personalities and producers be approached and encouraged to lessen violence in TV and films? We are a society that is motivated by a number of things. One of those things is the bottom line. One of those mm. things is the amount of money that we make as individuals or that we make as a company. And a motivation for many people in, in, in the media, for many of those people who produce soaps and movies like Die Hard 2 and, and a number of other consumable items that we call a part of the media, are certainly motivated in part by their ability to sell their program or their product. And violence in this country sells. I don't think it's impossible to sensitize an awful lot of people about the importance of introducing much less violence in the media. I think to do that we need better research, but I think there are always going to be some people who are going to be hard to convince because it is what sells, and that is a very important motivation for some number of people. Ann Cohn, Executive Director of the National Committee for Prevention of Child Abuse, you have made us look, you've helped us look at the face of child abuse and its underlying causes. It has been an important time to be with you. By the same token, we look into your face, hear you talk about what has been done, is being done, and could be done, and we take heart and we join in with you. Mm -hmm.